Brian Halligan's background in venture capital paved the way for his huge entrepreneurial success when he co-founded HubSpot in 2006, a leading sales and marketing software company. Halligan has since grown the company into a more than $20 million per year business with over 300 employees. Brian was named Ernst & Young's Entrepreneur of the Year in 2011, a Glassdoor 25 highest rated CEO in 2014 and 2015, and an Inc. Founders 40 in 2016. Starting stuff's easy. Now, the good news is starting stuff's easy. The bad news is because it's so easy to start something, every industry is competitive. Whether you're building marketing and sales software, CRM software, you're building chairs, you're building uh, horse tooth implants. It's so easy to start a company and build a product today. Every industry is crowded. What's become very, very hard isn't starting companies, but scaling companies and really growing them because it's just tough. It's a dog. It's really a very competitive world out there, particularly in the United States economy. At an Ivy Entrepreneur Night in Boston, Brian drew on his experience as a marketing expert to reveal how to expand your network and build game-changing ventures from scratch. Please enjoy our conversation with Brian Halligan. You're listening to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life. And our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. For more information about the Ivy community and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us at membership at ivy.com. First question I'd ask of you is a number of people here are familiar with HubSpot, but I never like to assume that there might be somebody new to the room who isn't familiar with it. So what is HubSpot and how did you become its founder? Sure. Who's heard of HubSpot before today? Okay. Uh, Let me just ask one more question before we jump in. Um, How many people are entrepreneurs that are running a startup right now? How many people are working for a startup? Okay. So it's a very startup crowd. Got it. Okay. Uh, I, the way we started HubSpot, <laughs> just give you the kind of founding story. Um, but, uh, it started Sloan. We were in business school together. My uh, my um, co-founder, Darmesh, went to school together. And HubSpot was very much born out of the Sloan school. Uh, it's a very good place to meet a co-founder. Uh, I was into at the time they called it Web 2.0 back 10 years ago. They had this thing called Web 2.0 and I was into small business. I was into the future of the internet. I was into network effects. I was into all this kind of stuff and I'm mildly interested in starting a company. And I came across our mesh and he was interested in very much the same thing. Um, and if I look at the two of us, like there's a Venn diagram, I'm, I'm sort of a sales and marketing person. He's more a tech person. There's a nice Venn diagram overlap and it's sort of this one plus one equals three that's happened between us. That's lasted. Uh, it's probably the luckiest moment of my life. The, the day I decided to start a company with him. Um, we decided to start. It was actually called Legal Spot uh, while we were in business school, and it was basically a platform for law firms to do stuff. Um, 
we did all our projects in business school around it. And we built some software. We showed it to law firms. There's one. Does anyone know the major problem with law firms? They just don't spend any fucking money. <laughs> so we pivoted uh, to HubSpot uh, and uh, got going there. But it really did. It was really born of Sloan. Our, our first angel investor was one of our professors. Uh, we raised a million in angel uh, capital. A hundred K from came from one of our professors. Nine hundred K came from our classmates who were walking around. They didn't look like they had a pot to piss in, but they had some really wealthy parents. Um, and so our classmates' parents funded HubSpot, and then we had to hire some people. We hired all our classmates, and not all of them, like a bunch of them. And then our early customers were all classmates. So to those of you still going to school, thinking about going to school, that's a really good place and time in your life to start a company. You also don't have like typically a big family and a big mortgage and all this burn rate. You can kind of live pretty lean. Um, the idea itself that led to HubSpot, and we pivoted a couple times, but the, the idea we tell investors, I'll give you the, I'll give you the reader's digest that we tell the, 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 the somewhat truth version of HubSpot was after business school, I went to work for this little tiny venture capital firm called Longworth Ventures that you wouldn't have heard of. And what they wanted me to do was work with their founders and their marketers and their salespeople and help them think about how do we grow these little tiny businesses into big companies someday? Because I had done some interesting stuff. And I would work with them and I would listen to them and I would look at their playbooks. They all had kind of the same playbook. They were going to buy a list and email lots of people. They were going to hire inside sales reps and cold call. They're going to buy ads, hire the big PR firm and do the big trade show. Everyone had the same five plays. And the ironic thing about that playbook was the exact playbook I had grown up with. Like I knew these plays and my assumption was that they were doing the plays wrong. They were hiring the wrong sales reps, buying the wrong lists, doing the wrong trade show, hiring the wrong PR firm. But the more I studied it, the more, the more depressed I became about myself and about marketing and selling. And my thesis was that humans, all of us are sick and tired of being marketed to. And we're getting very clever at blocking it out, whether that's caller ID on your phone or your spam protection or your ad blocker software, your DVR, your Netflix. It's like impossible to reach humans these days using ye old playbook. Um, so that was sort of insight number one that led to HubSpot. Insight number two, Darmesh came up with, he had blogged his way through uh, uh, Sloan, a little blog on startups.com. He had a 100,000 times more interest in his shit little blog than any of my wealthy venture-backed startups. He didn't have any money. Uh, he didn't have any talent. He just wrote interesting content. But boy, was he clever in pulling people in from Google and back then digging Reddit. You know, with this is kind of pre-Facebook, Twitter, and uh, Instagram and all this stuff. And that was the aha. We were sort of... I was, I was wallowing misery like marketing and selling is broken. It doesn't work anymore. People are immune to selling and marketing. And at the same time, there was this insight that Darmesh kind of has is that humans are really changing the way they live, the way they learn, the way they shop, the way they buy. And then we need to completely transform the way we go to market to match the way humans actually live. And that was the nugget right there. And we started calling it inbound marketing. And we started contrasting it with outbound marketing. Old school, bad. Ah. New school, good. Ah. <laughs> and that works. Um, and then... I tried to implement our vision for social and search and this new type of marketing in our portfolio companies. And it was hard because I had to go buy 
a search engine optimization consultant and hack together social media tools and buy a content management system and start a blog and buy some marketing automation and put in CRM. And the next thing you know, I had seven or eight different vendors and software and it got complicated. That That's how we started HubSpot. It was that insight of inbound versus outbound and the insight that, gosh, it's hard for mere mortal small companies to pull this off. It's really complicated from a technology perspective. And thank God we did it. Um, it's turned out to be the best decision of my life to start HubSpot for sure. Sounds great. So through the course of that, through the course of that, what would I you say? I promise the answers will get shorter. <laughs> <laughs> they don't have to be. The more knowledge you can bring to the table, okay. the more we enjoy it. What are some of your unique strengths or skills and how do you leverage them into your day-to-day work at HubSpot? Okay. I'm not sure I have any unique uh, skills at all, uh, <laughs> but I have three influences in some... I, I think of myself like there's three bubbles over me that very much influence me and HubSpot. I spent the first 10 years of my career at a company called PTC, Parametric Technology. It's based out in Waltham. I joined right out of college as the first inside sales rep. And I joined, there were maybe 500 employees and I wrote it to 5,000. I spent 10 years there and I did a bunch of stuff. I moved to Japan. I moved to Hong Kong. It was a wonderful ride. And I learned a ton. I learned a ton about hiring sales reps, firing sales reps, scaling sales organizations, building funnels, the mechanics of a sales machine. PTC had a good one. Now, if PTC were a president or a presidential candidate, it would be Donald Trump. <laughs> sort of the culture. I mean, I, 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 whether you're a Trump fan or not, it just that's the way it felt. And I spent 10 years there. It was great. Learned a ton about going from a startup to a scale-up. Then I spent four years at a little startup called Groove Networks. And people probably never heard of Groove Networks. I was their head of sales. And Groove was famous for its founder. There's a terrific guy named Ray Ozzie who founded it. And Ray Ozzie is famous because he invented Lotus Notes. And he basically invented email. And he's a wonderful guy. And he was the CEO of the company. And he taught me... He didn't know anything about building a, a sales machine or a funnel or sales reps. In fact, he hated salespeople. But he knew a lot about the future of technology and he considered himself a social anthropologist. So what he did is he said, where is the future of networking going? Where's the future of PCs and mobile devices going? Where's the future of application development going? How do I build an application that can enable the future for humans? And he did that with Lotus Notes. We tried to do it with Groove. We sort of whiffed on it. But uh, he, he considered himself a social anthropologist. And I learned a lot about that. And there's a lot of that inside of HubSpot. Now, if Ray Ozzie were a president, Bernie Sanders. Feel the burn. He would be very much a Bernie Sanders. Uh, very different style. And so I've got this hardcore sort of Trump PTC in me. And I've got some of this technology, innovation, Sanders in me. And then I went back to business school. So I have some sort of finance and accounting. HubSpot's sort of a combination of these three. The application very much is we built it in the, in the, in the nature of the way Ray Ozzie would have built it. We're a little bit hardcore on how we build our sales org and scale and think about metrics and things like that. And so it's very much a combo. I'm not sure I have any unique skills or knowledge, but sort of that combination has been very helpful for me. How about a personal mission? in terms of your profession? I don't necessarily have a personal mission, but I'll say my own goals have changed. So I do life goals. I don't know if you guys do life goals, but every five years I sit down and write, you know, what do I want to get done in my life? Every birthday I look at them. 
And I crossed a bunch off over the last few years, and I've been remaking them. And my life goals have have uh, shifted a lot. And one of the things that's nice about HubSpot is it's enabled me to like be a platform to reach my goals. And my goal is I want to impact people. We've got 1,700 employees. I want as many of them to have as awesome an experience as they can at HubSpot and go on and start companies that turn into huge, much bigger companies than HubSpot. I fund people who leave the company, who start companies like a funded 15 of them to go start new companies who have left. I want to impact as many customers as I can. So we have 30 some odd thousand customers. I want to help them grow their business. A lot of them are entrepreneurs like you guys, uh, marketers or salespeople in uh, startup organizations. We have 3,000 partners. I want to impact their lives. And to the extent I can make some money, I want to impact as many charities' lives as I can in Boston. And so the mission is very much shifted to we want to survive and we out of a we want to have a, an ongoing concern with HubSpot. I want to make some money in my life too. Gosh, how can I impact as many lives? How can I impact Boston? Part of the I tell you what, who's from Boston? Are we all Bostonians here? I don't want to, I don't want anyone tweeting this part. <laughs> I'm sick and tired of San Francisco. <laughs> I'm tired of it. Those guys, I'm tired of it. I want to bring, when I grew up around here, we had digital equipment, which you probably never heard of, and prime computers and wank. We were the center. They called 128 America's Technology Highway. We crushed those guys out west. They are lapping us now. It's going to be like LeBron James next week when they're, he's lapping the Celtics, unfortunately. Uh, it's just, they're killing us. I'm so tired of it. I want to bring Boston back. What's missing from Boston, in my opinion, isn't startups, isn't you guys, isn't entrepreneurs, lots of entrepreneurs, lots of funding, actually. There's a lot of the ingredients. What's missing are these anchor companies, these scale-up companies that spin people and companies and technology and stuff off. Like I think of Google. It's just a giant company out there. Hundreds, thousands of people have left Google and stocked all the other startups in California. So much uh, angel money comes out of Google. So much talent comes out of there. So many entrepreneurs come out of there. That thing is an economic engine. You know, it's unbelievable, the economic impact. Boston has very few of these. I look at myself. I'm a direct descendant of a scale-up, PTC. Kind of a crappy scale-up compared to Google, but at least we have one. Akamai is one. <laughs> There's just none. You know, HubSpot's trying to be like that. Uh, that's what we're missing. And those big companies where you learn to go from 100 employees to 10,000 employees, and you go through all the pain of that uh, 100 to 10,000. When you learn to, 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 to scale the organization, you scale the way you make decisions, scale the technology, all that stuff. The knowledge is just missing in Boston. And so part of my mission is to try to bring Boston back. Um, it's about time. We have the schools, we have the talent, we have the money. We're missing the experience. And I think we're missing these scale-ups that, that are real economic engines. So in order to make that change, in order to make it more competitive with San Francisco, what do you think is perhaps the key component, the key uh, goal or um, drive that one has to do here in Boston to compete successfully against San Francisco? Yeah, I think it's like if I think of, of, of the founders of Boston... They're, I mean, they're Puritans. They had buckles on their belts and they had buckles on their hats and they had buckles on their shoes. These people were buckled up. <laughs> uh, I mean, who were the founders of San Francisco? Bunch of gold miners, right? They're risk takers. These people are not buckled up. 
and it's in the culture here. Like, I think when a founder, let's say you're a founder of a company, and Google comes along and you're two years in and Google says to you, you know what? I'll give you $100 million for your company. And you're just doing the math in your head. You're logical, right? You're descendant of a Puritan. You just do the math and you're like, <laughs> okay, I own half this thing. I sell it to Google. That's, that's $50 million to me. Option number one down the decision tree is I take the 50 now. Cool. Option number two is I roll the dice. And five years from now, maybe it's worth a billion. Or maybe it's worth nothing. Maybe Google runs me over. Bostons are very logical people. Bostonians are logical people. They're pragmatic people. And they take the right choice, actually. The very logical choice that, that you should take. Californians don't. They roll the dice every time. And if they fail, they go do it again. If they make a bunch of money, they roll it all into their new startup. Elon Musk made a bunch of money on PayPal. He took every nickel he had and put it in Tesla and SpaceX. He didn't care. I think there's something culturally that's missing and that's hard to fix. Uh, but I think at least we can build some scale-ups. At least we can learn the skills and the knowledge you need to really take your company to the next level. I found in the American economy today, it's never been easier to start a company. Right? It's so easy. And people bitch about the government. The government doesn't get in the way of you starting a company. It's very easy to start a company. The paperwork's easy. Lawyers are easy. It's not a bunch of tax forms. It's actually quite straightforward. If you want to build a piece of software, gosh, you use AWS and all this open source stuff, and everyone knows how to write software these days. You're building a piece of hardware. You use rapid prototyping. You can build something. You can build a friggin' spaceship in China in a week. Um, <laughs> starting stuff's easy. Now... The good news is starting stuff's easy. The bad news is because it's so easy to start something, every industry is competitive. Whether you're building marketing and sales software, CRM software, you're building chairs, you're building uh, horse tooth implants. It's so easy to start a company and build a product today. Every industry is crowded. What's become very, very hard isn't starting companies, but scaling companies and really growing them because it's just tough. It's a dog. It's really a very competitive world out there, particularly in the United States economy. Um, I forgot what the question was. I'm really meandering at this point. It's okay. <laughs> There's something about San Francisco and yeah, yeah, yeah. their football team. Uh, with as you as CEO of HubSpot, yep. you're team, the people underneath you who work with you are, are key to the success of, of your company. So let's talk a few questions, have a few questions regarding sure. um, your team. Why is it important to get regular feedback either on or about or from your managers? Okay. Let me ask the crowd a question. Okay, I'm going to give you every dollar in my wallet if you got the question right. Five years ago, I had eight people who reported directly to me. Today, I have eight people who report directly to me. How many overlap? Eight, nine, nine, zero. Oh my God. 10, 15, 16. Ooh, hey, lucky day. I went to the ATM machine. <laughs> <laughs> Bear in mind, he's the CEO. <laughs> uh, there's only one, uh, my co-founder. We've turned the whole team over, and we've turned it over twice. Uh, and there's been some weird reasons in our history. We've made some mistakes in some of the turnover. But for the most part, the pattern's been quite interesting. What we've done forever 
is we survey all of our employees once a quarter and we ask them two questions. On a scale of one to 10, how likely are you to refer HubSpot to one of your friends to come work there? And the second question is why? This is standard net promoter uh, questions, but applied to uh, employees. And then we cut it, excuse me, by, um, by VP. And we measure it over a long period of time. So let's say our VP of sales, their score is, uh, you know, 90, 89, 92, 98, and then it drops to 30. And this has happened to us a bunch of times. What do you do when it drops to, th- what do you do? It drops to 30. What should you do? You look at the whys. You go through the whys. Then do you fire the person? No. You give them another chance. You know, fix it. Okay. So we give them the feedback, right? Head of sales. Here's all the feedback. You're going to work on it. You're smart. You're going to figure this out. You, you, you know, we went to school together. We're old friends. It's going to be great. Do the survey in the next quarter. What's the score go to? Yeah, what do you think? Goes down? Who thinks it goes down? Raise your hand if it goes down. Goes up? Let's try that again. No, no, no offense hitters. Goes down? Goes up? Goes way down. Goes to zero. And this has happened to me seven times in the last five years. Okay, now what do you do? What do you do? You train him? Is it time to let the person go? Yeah, well, we don't let them. We try to find a new role. They're usually quite talented, but about half the time we're able to find a new role. Half the time they um, move on. Um, and then we hire somebody new into the role, right? Either internal or externally. And then we do the survey again a quarter later. Score go up or down? Up. What's it go to? Goes all the way back up. All way back up. Now, what does that tell you? I think that's very interesting to me. It tells me a couple things. The first thing it tells me is once you've lost confidence in your team, for better or worse, you never can get it back. At least we've never been able to have a manager win that team back, even with really good intelligence. The second thing it tells me is once you put a new leader in that's capable you can get the whole thing. Everybody jumps back and it's almost an immediate effect. And this has happened to us seven times really in the last four or five years. And so team to us is a big deal. And and what we learned about teams is some people are real startup people. Maybe a lot of you are startup people. And some people are more scale-up people. And they like dealing with scale-up problems. And some people don't. Almost all of the people who left are either started a company or working in a startup or they're teaching about startups somewhere and they're all doing fantastic. Uh, but we've had, we've had real churn issues. Now, the tricky thing is when we go to hire those scale up people, there's none in Boston, right? There's no one seen that movie. So we end up going to California to hire someone from salesforce.com and move them here. We're playing that game. And so team feedback to me is really key. And we've learned, we've learned a lot from it. You were talking about team confidence just a moment ago. And let's say, well, combine these. How do you evaluate a team's confidence in their leader? And also, perhaps if they've lost that confidence, how do you regain it back? That's sort of like what I just said. Is I we we ask we ask the, we ask basically a question. Uh, it's like a pres- you know how the president they have the presidential approval rating, and they do it like every day now. Um, <laughs> we at least we only do it once a quarter. Uh, it's very indicative of what's going on in that organization. And, and the team tells us when their, their leaders is, uh, falling down. It's not usually us that finds it. It's usually their team that kind of screams for it. Now, the reason they fail is very interesting too. 
you peel it back in like six out of the seven. Like I've got this Halligan's hierarchy of, of, of needs. And on the bottom is I want people to solve for enterprise value, for HubSpot's value. And then I want for their team. And then the top for yourself. Sort of like Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And the thing that gets messed up with, with the folks who fail is they tend to put the team at the bottom and HubSpot in the middle and themselves at the top. They almost never put themselves at the top. And it's the employees of that person who complain. And it shows up in different ways. They start paying them their people too much. They start giving them too many stock options relative to their peers. They start stealing resources from their peers and moving them into their group. It's that type of behavior uh, that usually ends up undoing it. What I want to do in my management team is I want to be able to close my eyes and listen to the discussion and not be able to tell who's who in the room. I want them all really solving for the company versus themselves. And it's not always that way, but that's kind of what we're striving for. for. Let's talk about potholes and not the type that we run into here on the streets sure. of Boston. How do you define a pothole in, in business in general? Sure. And why is it important to spot those potholes early on? Sure. We have this, the, the people describe me as the CPPO at HubSpot, the Chief Pothole Prevention Officer. And, uh, Potholes are a funny thing. I've actually done some research on potholes. Like in the winter, a little crack opens in the sidewalk. You leave it alone for a while. It's fine. But then if it gets it's cold and there's water in there and it gets ice and then it melts and there's ice and it melts, the next thing you know, that thing's a giant sinkhole that's going to swallow your whole car up. And so potholes left alone can get very large. And that's very much the case with us. Um, so if we see problems... The thing that kills us is when we ignore them or we don't see them coming. Now, the thing that's interesting I've noticed about HubSpot is the bigger we get, the harsher these potholes can be and how tied in everything is. And I'll give, let me give you an example of that. Uh, last year, we fell behind on our support hiring. So we have like 100 people who answer the phone. If you got a question, answer question, support, you know, support, traditional support stuff. And they're terrific, but we fell behind on hiring. We we're about 10 behind. And what we strive to do is when someone calls our support organization, we want, we want to answer within a minute. And we want 90% of the answers within a minute, which I think is a reasonable thing to do. When we fall behind hiring, the next thing you know, it's 20 minutes on the phone. Now, when a customer is waiting for 20 minutes and they don't get an answer, what do they do? Well, they get pissed off. They tweet about it. They post it on Facebook. Um, they hang up. And who do they call? Hey, they give you a second shot. They call your, their sales rep. It's almost worse than calling the competitor. Is the sales rep good at answering the question? No. Uh, what does the sales rep do? Well, they pick up the phone. They call support. And so it's just this thing that kind of spirals. And then the problem is the customers are pissed off. They're complaining on Twitter and Facebook. The sales reps are missing their numbers because they're answering support calls all day. It's amazing how intertwined the company is. And so for me, it's just like pothole prevention is my key job. How do we get in front of it? Uh, how do I identify them early? How do we not put blinders on when there's a potential pothole? How do we attack it early? I look for people who are paranoid about potholes. Um, I'm not a big fan of people with rose-colored glasses who look at the whole world and it looks rosy and everything's fine. Don't worry. I hate the word don't worry. Um, so potholes are key for me. And the potholes are tied together. The bigger HubSpot get, it's like the human body. And it almost everything... You can't stink at anything in our size. You have to be at least pretty good at everything or the whole thing will fall, fall, uh, fall apart. 
As a company gets bigger, though, you when you get more staff, perhaps um, falling into those potholes more than one time is certainly possible. So as a leader, what mindset is helpful in helping you help your staff avoid falling into the same pothole twice? Yep. One of the tricks we have is every time we have a pothole, we ask ourselves, what data do we wish we had six months ago that would have told us this problem was coming? Uh, and so one chart that would have been useful would have been a chart of a waterfall chart of over time, how many heads are we supposed to have in support? What's the tenure of those heads? And then look at how many are turning over and how many new are we hiring? And is there a problem in hiring new? Is there a problem in turnover? Or is there a problem in tenure? And if we had had that, we would have seen it early. We would have fixed it early. So what we do is every time we have a pothole and we've had hundreds, we create one, try to create one darn slide that would have showed us that pothole. And then every month I get a deck with, it's probably 180 slides now. And <laughs> it takes me 20 minutes. I just fly through it and, uh, that helps. Actually, it helps a lot. So we rarely hit the same pothole twice. If we hit the same pothole twice, that's that's bad on us. Yeah, that's very that's very bad. We're very good at finding new potholes, though. What kind of advice would you give to leaders to be more confident in their decision making? Drink more. <laughs> Clearly, that solves everything. Very confident. <laughs> uh, but besides that. <laughs> uh, because as a leader, you want your team to be confident in their decisions, to be confident in doing the correct job for you. Sure. So how do you instill that confidence in those people? Okay. I have some a couple thoughts on decision-making. Um, we've gone, come a long way in decision-making in HubSpot. It's really been a big shift for us. In the early days of HubSpot, we were big believers in Agile and Lean. Raise your hand if you read that Lean Startups book. Okay, a lot of people know that book. Um, and I think the advice in that book's sound. Um, and it works well in startup mode. And we change our mind a lot. It's just the way you do business when you're a lean startup. And you take pride in the fact you change your mind a lot. Um, and uh, I changed my mind all the time when we were small. And changing your mind is cheap when you're small. Changing your mind is very expensive as you get big. So we kept that lean startup method. Uh, method that agile very lean approach not just in product but we we had agile and lean throughout all of hubspot every every department we sort of leaned into that whole idea and that decision making of lean and changing your mind and that's the right thing to do and let's be agile it just got very expensive as we got bigger uh and it took us a long time to figure out that lean and agile didn't scale as well as the book said it was going to scale uh <laughs> And um, we also had something in our culture that was bad that if I would make a decision, let's say we're all in the room, we have a big discussion about a topic, I'd make a decision. And everyone say, okay. But then we'd all walk out of the room. And if you lost the argument, you'd lobby me when we left the room. You'd be like, yeah, you blew that one. Again, Halligan, you blew that decision. Um, and you'd grind me on it and eventually get me and be like, yeah, you're right. And I'd flip-flop on it. And it wasn't a big deal. It's easy to flip-flop when you're small. No big deal. Uh, but boy, it was expensive when you're bigger because you committed all these resources and people would spend you know, months, years of their life on this decision and then you flipped it. And so we've changed the way we make decisions. And we have a couple of expressions that have been worth their weight in gold. One is we call it sailing the ship. And I have this... It's like the USS Constitution. Once it's out of the harbor, it's going to take a long time to turn that thing around. So when we have a rich, heated debate, which we always have, 
um, people will look at me and say, okay, you made that decision. Are you sailing the ship on it? And if I say yes, it means that's it. And that has worked very well for us. That's got us away from lean and agile. We still are lean and agile on the edge, but on big decisions, we're not. And that's helped a lot. It's helped everyone's lives a lot. It's helped just settle the friggin' organization down. Now, the sister cultural thing we had to do was once I sailed the ship, we had to have a culture that said, okay, we're si- I-, I heard exactly what you said. I know you disagreed with me. Um, but I'm going to decide and you're going to lose this one. You might win the next one, but you're going to lose it. You have to get on board with this decision. Don't come to me later and lobby me. It's just not going to work. And so the combination of that sailing the ship and changing the culture around lobbying after and whether you agree with the decision or not, even a crap decision is better than a going back and forth. And so getting people, everyone behind even a crap decision has been very, very helpful. Uh, so I advise that to people, if all of you, is really think about the way you make decisions. It's been a big journey for me as a CEO. I've made a lot of mistakes as a CEO. Uh, and I've had a lot of coaching. I'm a professional coach. One of the areas I've had the most coaching on is decisions. Also around decisions, one of my biggest strengths as a founder, as an entrepreneur, is I like to control things. I like to make a lot of decisions. That strength turns into a major weakness at scale. And so all it's like kryptonite. It turned it turned from just a major strength into major weakness. And so letting go has been a big, big issue for me. Trying to let go. I'm still working on letting go. I'm not very good at it. And one of the ways that I've tried to let go is I use this is from the book Good to Great, the bus analogy. Raise your hand if you know the bus analogy. Okay. I use the bus analogy. And what basically is the CEOs get three jobs. One, find a point on the map. We're going over there. We're going to uh, B&G Oysters uh, in the bus and get everyone aligned around that point on the map. Second thing, and, and get everyone fired up about that. Second thing, make sure the right people are on the bus with the right skills to help you get there because the skill set changes. And third, make sure there's enough gas in the tank that you can get all the way over to B&G Oysters. So I try, 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 try to stay out of the weeds. I'm not that good at it. But that's a good way to think about decision making. One more thought on decisions. We spend so much time talking, overanalyzing friggin' the way we make decisions. Uh, we have an expression inside of HubSpot that's very useful that we call uninspired compromise. So let's say all of us were in a room, hot topic, we argue, maybe somebody yells, somebody else screams back, like it's really not clear what the right answer is. The worst type of decision is when one group's arguing black, the other group's arguing white, and the decision is gray. Almost every time we make one of those split split the difference, trying to make half these folks happy, the other, we almost always blow those. And so we try to force the organization to decide. It's either black or it's white. And what we also try to force is... Don't just do what the majority wants. There's eight people in the room. Six are arguing for black. Two are arguing for white. The weakest leader will pick gray. The second weakest leader will pick black. Somebody with a real backbone will pick white. The counterintuitive decision that the competitors aren't going to do. And so that idea of um, uninspired compromises, we're allergic to those idea of uninspired compromises. That slowed us down a lot in the early days of HubSpot. What's the most important thing or several things that you as a leader can do to help prevent some of these uninspired compromises? What advice would you give to someone else outside of HubSpot for that? Not sure. Um, 
I think if you just bring that word into the company and start talking about it and call people on it, like I'm called on it sometimes. It's it hurts when someone called this guy your name Brad Coffee inside of HubSpot. He was our first intern. He's like runs M and A for us. He came up with it. And I remember the day he came up with it and he called me on something. He's like, you know, dude, that's an uninspired compromise. I said, a what? It's an uninspired compromise. Like, you just come up with that? He's like, no, I've been thinking about it. Like, <laughs> Pretty good. Uh, and so he calls me on it and it's like, you see it written on whiteboards and stuff. It's part of our culture. I'm not sure how you would build it in. Just write a wiki. We have a very active wiki. Like, it's insanely active. I can't keep up with it. If you search an uninspired compromise, it comes up a couple times a day on the wiki. It's very common, but I'm not sure how to advise you on that. Oh, start talking about it. You'll sound smart like Brad Coffee. <laughs> well, let's talk about prioritization. That's certainly important with any organization in terms of your goals and so forth. So what would you say is your philosophy on prioritization at HubSpot? Okay. Uh... The best prioritization person I've ever met is Darmesh, my co-founder. Raise your hand if you've come across Darmesh. He's a unique snowflake. Uh, what Darmesh does that is very unusual, he has very, very few priorities. He'll have like, yeah, this month I'm working on two things. And there'll be two hard things, like hard. He'll want to be the world's best chatbot developer. And he'll really dig in and he'll work 24 hours a day on it. Uh, early on in HubSpot, one of the reasons we became successful is he said, I want to be one of the top 10 SEO search engine optimization gurus on the planet. It's really complicated stuff. He, I think he largely did it. What he's very good at is he says, I'm going to get very, very good at something that's very, very hard. But I'm going to say no to everything else. And so the way it works with him is a little painful uh, at times where... Like, hey, Darmesh, would you mind um, moving that waste barrel from over there to over there? If it's not on his top two priority list, it, he's like, oh, yeah, I got that. And he'll forget about it. Like five minutes later, he'll forget about it. But if, but if it's on his to-do list, be like, hey, Darmesh, would you mind lifting B&G oysters up over your head? Sure. And the next thing you know, the whole friggin' building is over his head. Uh, he's an extreme prioritizer. And I think he's vaguely, he's got it basically right. And so I've gone from someone with a, an insanely long to-do list to, uh, of which I do everything in a very mediocre way to someone with 10 things every month that I say, I want to do these 10 things. I want to do them well. And Darmesh maybe got two. Uh, so I do very many, many fewer things than I used to do. And I try to do them very well. Uh, I have these 10 things. I put them on our wiki every month so the employees all can see them. And then the first day of every month, I, I mark, you know, red, yellow, green. Did I make progress on this or not? Um, and I try to get as many green as I can. It's not always successful, but everyone can see it. And that, that's a good out for me. And I, this is work for, this is a little hack that I use that's been very helpful for me because if an employee asks me to do something like, you know, whatever, you know, some speaking gig I don't really want to do. Uh, Clearly not, not tonight, though. Not this one. <laughs> I wouldn't have done it unless... This is great because I live right around the corner, by the way. I live above Mistral around the corner. It's perfect. Location, location, yeah. location. Uh, I can just be like, hey, it's just not on my priority list this much this month. And they, they let me get away with it. It's really quite nice. Um, I'll tell you the other work hack I have that's been helpful. Uh, this isn't one of your questions, but it's whatever. Uh, it's okay. Go with it. <laughs> I think email in Slack... What email and Slack are is everybody else in the world putting their priority to-do list on you. 
right? So if you just spend your whole day like, today I'm just going to catch up on email or catch up on all the slacks. You're basically just catching up on everyone else's projects. Uh, what I try to do is have... Here's the 10 things I'm going to do. And I'm going to send some emails because I want people's help in this. But email and Slack are not on the top of my list. Like I'll do it at the end of the day, not the beginning of the day. I think the worst thing you do is wake up in the morning and check Slack and email because everyone else's to-do list, bam, on your to-do list and your whole day is blown up doing other people's stuff. I think people need to balance their email habits and their Slack habits because they it sort of overruns their day. And they just don't get anything done. You know, they get other people's stuff done and you can help other people and all. But, uh, I think he, he, everyone loves Slack and I love Slack too, but man, it can be a productivity killer. You were talking a little bit earlier about, um, all the eight people on your team and perhaps eight people on your team are with another company, a larger uh, group of people. How would you recommend someone navigate the conflicts and or the sacrifices between different employees, different teams, different departments? whether they be professional or interpersonal. Yep. There's inevitably a lot of conflict inside a company. Um, we've got this winners and losers thing that's become part of our culture. Like, there's going to be arguments. People are going to... Definitely, the smart, rational people are going to disagree. Um, and there's going to... Uh, the way I like to make decisions is somebody's... You know, you're going to win this one or you're going to lose this one. You might win or lose the next one. What I'm not going to do is be too cute by half and kind of split the difference. So we've got kind of a winner and loser culture. And if you're a loser, you're not a real loser. You just lost this one decision. But I kind of like to see when there's a big decision that someone's making. Your VP of sales got a big decision. There's a group of people who want to do it this way and a group of people who want to do it that way. The direct sales people want to do this. The channel sales people want to do this. There's no, there's, yeah, they're really at odds. What I like to see that decision maker do is pick one, pick a winner and a loser and double down on one of them and not the other one. That served me quite well. All right. We have three important questions to ask you and then we'll open it up to the floor. Okay. So I'm sure everybody's excited to pick your brain with their individual questions. I I'd like to ask you, what are the three biggest takeaways that you have when it, you know, that you, what are the three biggest takeaways when it comes to scaling a startup? I, I don't, what do I know? Uh, You're the CEO. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You've clearly had some success at this. I think it, 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 it's easy to start a company. It's easy to get excited because you're raised around the funding. There's so much funding out there, angel funding and venture funding. Um, don't get too excited. Uh, it's hard to scale a company. And I think the way you make decisions has to shift. The way your team works has to shift. You need a culture, an opinion on your culture. Your culture needs to be a magnet for the people you want, and it needs to repel the people you don't want. Um, those are some important things. One piece of advice I would give everybody in the room is everyone wants to work for a startup these days. I think you want to work for a scale-up at some point and learn all this crap that I learned at PTC. And just like so many scars from that. And I, the people I'm working with at HubSpot now, they go through so much and learn so much. Even if by osmosis, they learn all this stuff. And then they go to the next company. They're just so well prepared. You go to a startup. Yeah, you might get lucky and catch lightning in a bottle. But uh, spend a couple of years in a scale-up can be the best thing you do. Go to work for Akamai. Go to work for HubSpot. Go to work for Wayfair. Go to work for... I don't know. Just 
eight or nine in town uh, or one of the big biotechs. That would be a piece of advice I would give people. Given your success, uh, which is formidable here, and the audience is very excited to hear what you have to say, um, what are the biggest ideas that you'd like this audience to take away from this evening, from what you've been able to bring in terms of your experience as CEO of HubSpot and others? Um, I guess I just did it. I would go work for a scale-up. Uh, I'd be aggressive. I think it's a great time to start a company, really hard time to scale it. Uh, if you're in technology industry, gosh, we're going to, your great, great grandkids will be reading in history books about this time in history, about how the internet really just turned every industry from driving to flying to CRM software to pens. I mean, you name it. This We're living through a golden age. Uh, that's amazing. Um, so to the extent you can learn to write software or go to work for a software enabled company, timing's good. We're living through it, an unprecedented age in human history in my mind. And lastly, clearly this is a great networking opportunity yeah. for all the individuals here tonight to meet with you, to meet with each other. You know, what role can a community like Ivy have in terms of helping entrepreneurs move from startup to scale up? Yeah, I think sessions like this are good. I would invite more scale-up people. I would invite with the Wayfair uh, CEO, um, C uh, Akamai CEO, a bunch of those folks, or execs from EMC. I think they know a lot. Everyone likes to come to these events, and startup founders come, and startup founders know a lot of stuff. But boy, that startup to scale-up is, is tough. So I would invite a lot of those. I'd invite some venture capitalists in. Uh, venture capitalists learn stuff, um, and they're, they get a bad rap, but they're very, very helpful. Um, yeah. I, I speak a lot at the EO and YPO. Those are good. Uh, both those organizations have great stuff. So, and I've, I've belonged to those for a while. I joined a CEO group when I first started HubSpot. There were 10 CEOs in it. It was really influential on my career. The CEO of uh, iRobot, the Roomba guy. I've got a man crush on him in a big way. <laughs> and uh, he's very influential on me. Uh, so I think these groups are good. I've learned a lot from groups just like this. Any final thoughts that you'd like to impart that we haven't touched upon? <sighs> Bring Boston back. <laughs> Thanks again for tuning in to the Ivy Podcast by Ivy, the social university. We are the grad school for life, and our mission is to spark world-changing collaborations by introducing you to the most inspiring people, ideas, and experiences in the world. Check us out at ivy.com for life-changing advice and gatherings, and the foremost thought leaders shaping our world today. For more information about the Ivy community, and to find out about events happening near you, visit ivy.com and email us via membership at ivy.com. Dream big and stay inspired.